This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. For this evening, uh, I'll be talking about regenerative and restorative options for knee arthritis and cartilage injuries. Um, so to begin, um, I have no financial disclosures related to this talk. Uh, just I am part of the research team. Um, we're involved in a few clinical research studies on uh, two of the treatments that um, I say specifically which one those are, but um, that does come up later in the talk. Uh, so to begin, um, I think it's important just to frame um, why uh, learning about knee arthritis and uh, the various treatment options, why it is an important topic. Uh, so first off, it's uh, exceedingly common. So 13% of women and 10% of men over the age of 65 uh, have been diagnosed with knee arth- arthritis. Um, people have a 45% lifetime risk of developing symptomatic knee arthritis. Uh, and there's actually a higher prevalence of knee replacements uh, than there are of congestive heart failure uh, or rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it's also a very disabling condition. Uh, so patients with knee arthritis have uh, lower health-related quality of life scores compared to other musculoskeletal conditions, uh, like the, the back, the hips. Knee arthritis is really impactful. Um, it has a negative effect on knee function and then also activity. Uh, and then finally, it's a uh, costly disease. Um, so uh, studies have estimated that these costs are $12,000 a year um, for hip and knee arthritis. And the primary driver for that is time away from work. Um, people uh, with disabling arthritis are not able to uh, function in their usual daily activities and uh, missing time from those activities. So uh, for this talk, a uh, brief outline here. So uh, we'll start uh, first section on uh, anatomy, uh, basic science of cartilage, kind of the foundations that uh, we take from our usual medical school courses for understanding this topic. Uh, then we'll discuss very briefly on just how we measure and evaluate treatment outcomes. Um, I think to be able to interpret uh, some of the results, we have to understand what we're using to um, decide what works and what doesn't. Uh, then we'll have a brief section on um, injection treatment options. And then finally, some surgical knee preservation treatment options to deal with these uh, challenging cartilage conditions. So first section, uh, knee anatomy and a little basic science of uh, cartilage. Uh, so the knee joint, um, it's primarily a hinge joint. Uh, the primary ranges of motion are in flexion and extension. Um, it does internally and externally rotate some. Um, and there's two primary articulations. Uh, so there's the tibiofemoral joint uh, between the, the tibia, the shin bone, and the femur, the thigh bone. Uh, as seen here, this is just a cadaver dissection. And then this is an arthroscopic video looking through the knee. Um, so this is the femur at the top, the tibia at the bottom, uh, and then the meniscus in between. So the articular cartilage is the shiny white um, coating on the ends of the bone, uh, and that is between the femur and the tibia, between the patella and the femur, um, and that um, allows the joint to, to function. The meniscus is placed between them. You uh, can see that in the picture here, and then also in the corresponding video on the left, on the, yeah, the left side of the screen. Um, the meniscus acts as a shock absorber in the knee. Uh, it... Um, disperses the load across the joint, protects the cartilage, and uh, increases the area across which the load is borne through the knee. Uh, Then we also have four primary ligaments in the knee. Um, The ACL here in the front of the knee, uh, the PCL sits behind it, and then we have the medial and the lateral collateral ligaments, uh, and those give the knee stability, um, so so we're able to, to walk and to function and use our knees. 
And uh, so then what makes our joints special? Uh, so really, um, one of the primary tissues is the cartilage. Uh, so we saw that on the ends of the bone, that shiny white tissue. Uh, and then there's also normal fluid in our joints, uh, the synovial fluid, uh, and that lubricates that surface. Um, and the joints are special because there's very little wear um, over load-bearing and motion with these joints. Um, studies have shown that the coefficient of friction of a joint um, is actually less than rubbing two ice cubes together. So uh, extremely wear-resistant and better than um, anything that we've been able to produce mechanically. Uh, like a metal and plastic joint, the wear properties are higher than our native uh, cartilage and synovial fluid. Um, these structures, though, they are disrupted by injury, by trauma, uh, by inflammatory conditions, um, and then also just degeneration over time. Uh, so on a histologic level, uh, so if we put this tissue under the microscope, um, this is what we see. So this is called hyaline cartilage. Um, this is the structure that makes up uh, the, uh, the cartilage that we have on the ends of the bone at the joint. Uh, and uh, the, um, the cartilage, it's composed of chondrocytes. Uh, that's the primary cell uh, within. Uh, we can see those here, um, these um, bright purple areas. Uh, and they're sitting in what's called a lacuna, uh, just a little space that it sits. Uh, and the rest of this glass-like structure through here um, is the extracellular matrix. Uh, so cartilage, uh, it's a very low proportion of cells, and it's primarily this other, these other proteins and other structure um, that are making up that tissue that we have. Um, there are um, proteins called proteoglycans. Um, they're large macromolecules. Um, they're negatively charged. They help attract water, um, and those give a fair amount of structure to the cartilage. And then uh, there's also type 2 collagen. Um, and the collagen is really the framework, um, the architecture of the cartilage. Um, and um, the, the type 2 collagen specifically uh, is the one that comprises the majority of um, articular cartilage on, uh, that we see in the knee joint. Uh, water is also an important part of, uh, of cartilage. Um, if we look, um, so that's one single cross-section of a joint. Um, and then this is um, just kind of a layer of that joint um, going from the articular surface at the top uh, down to the bone underneath. And um, the other aspect of cartilage is that it's really a, architecturally a complex structure. Um, so here at the articular surface, um, those cells, those chondrocytes, um, they're flat, they're parallel. Uh, in the middle of the cartilage, they become more, um, more oblique and rounded. Um, and then as you get deeper, closer to bone, they're now stacked in columns. Um, the collagen organization also changes. Um, on the, the joint lining, uh, the collagen is oriented in line with that surface, um, becomes oblique also through um, this middle zone, and then it's perpendicular uh, as you get closer to the bone. Um, the cartilage at the very bottom is calcified, um, and it's a subtle transition from the cartilage layer down to bone. Um, and it's really this complex structure, that complex architecture um, that... Uh, also makes cartilage special and also uh, presents a challenge for us when trying to restore uh, the normal tissue that we have. Uh, so then why is uh, cartilage problematic? Um, so it's uh, avascular tissue. Um, so on those sections, we didn't see any blood vessels. We didn't see any nerves. Um, the, blood, uh, the blood vessels are not running into this tissue. Um, the, um, the cartilage gets its nutrition uh, just from diffusion across that structure. Uh, and that really impacts the healing potential. Uh, so in the setting of an injury, of degeneration, inflammation, uh, there's not a good way for cartilage to repair itself, to restore. Uh, the, the chondrocytes, uh, as we saw, they're in those little lacuna. 
Uh, and so they can't mobilize to the site of injury. They're fixed where they are, uh, and uh, they can't travel around, fix damaged tissue. Uh, they're uh, just set in that spot. Um, and the complex structures and properties um, of cartilage is just something that we, uh, as physicians, as scientists, we're not great at reproducing yet. Uh, this video here, so this is uh, a knee arthroscopy. So we have a camera in the knee joint um, of a patient who's uh, lost the cartilage. Um, this is looking up at the undersurface of the kneecap. So the patellar cartilage, um, that again, that white surface through here um, is the articular cartilage. And then uh, you can see that we're missing it, and then it's down to that uh, bony surface. So we're all the way down to that subchondral bone. So um, there are different types of cartilage abnormalities. Um, so first, um, there's systemic inflammatory disorders. Uh, so these are conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, other conditions like that, uh, where the body has an autoimmune process that is leading to uh, inflammation in multiple joints across the body, uh, which causes breakdown of the cartilage and then advanced degenerative changes. Uh, you can have uh, more localized problems within a joint, uh, but involving the whole joint. So this is like somebody with knee arthritis. Uh, osteoarthritis is... Uh, the most common type of arthritis that we see. Um, and it's um, generally attributed to wear and tear over time. Uh, you know, we, those, we know those wear properties of cartilage are great, um, but over 60, 70, 80 years, uh, even that tissue can wear out and have degeneration. Uh, also, post-traumatic arthritis, so patients who suffer um, ACL injuries, they're at a higher risk for um, arthritis after that. Um, or other, you know, direct trauma to the knee, um, throws off the mechanics of the knee, increases the wear of cartilage. Um, it's not gliding like it should, uh, and then it breaks down over time. Um, and then finally, a third category is the focal cartilage abnormality. Um, there's a condition called osteochondritis dissecans, uh, where the cartilage and the bone underlying it are abnormal. This is something we see uh, in teenagers, um, kids to teenagers, sometimes in adulthood, uh, but that uh, cartilage to bone structure is abnormal, and you end up losing a piece of uh, the cartilage with the bone um, underneath, uh, just isolated to one area. Uh, so we're able to treat that a little differently than the patient who has this widespread inflammatory um, abnormality. Uh, we also do see traumatic cartilage injuries. So uh, fairly common when somebody dislocates their kneecap, uh, they can knock off a smaller piece of the cartilage, um, and we'll, again, treat that differently than somebody with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so these abnormality uh, categories are important to keep in mind as we talk about treatment options. So um, in thinking about treatment options, um, our current state, uh, so patients with mild, moderate knee arthritis, um, our best treatments are physical therapy, uh, maintaining good muscle strength, good coordination of the joint, good balance, uh, weight loss, uh, we know that the knee sees, um, you know, parts of the knee sees seven to ten times body weight, and uh, keeping a healthy weight, uh, limiting the weight across that joint will relieve symptoms and is a reliable treatment to, um, uh, for people with knee arthritis. Uh, activity modification is a good way to manage arthritis. If uh, your knee hurts with running, uh, transition to something lower impact, cycling, elliptical, other um, activities like that. Um, our uh, primary medications that we go to are acetaminophen, Tylenol, um, or the NSAID class of medications like ibuprofen, Aleve. Um, and these help with pain. Uh, the anti-inflammatories help some with um, inflammation too. Um, and then sometimes these are enough to uh, mitigate those more mild symptoms. 
Um, and then finally, um, injections. So um, corticosteroid injections are fairly common. Um, those can give good symptomatic relief. And then we'll talk about some of the other injection options. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, patients with severe knee arthritis, um, knee replacements are great treatment. Um, so Dr. Barry, he's going to speak in two weeks about uh, advances of hip and knee arthritis and uh, really uh, joint replacement in that setting of um, advanced bone-on-bone arthritis, the joints uh, completely worn out, very limited function, a uh, lot of pain. This is a great treatment, and um, you know our uh, field has advanced quite a bit, and we're able to do this in a pretty reliable, reproducible fashion. Uh, but then the problem is really uh, this treatment gap in between. So the patients um, with uh, knee arthritis, their symptoms are not responding to these conservative options, uh, but they're not quite ready for that knee replacement, or uh, maybe they have a more uh, focal lesion that could respond to some other treatment aside from just uh, replacing the whole joint. Uh, this would also include our younger patients, um, somebody in their, their 20s or 30s we're hoping to not put in a metal and plastic joint. Uh, those do have a limited lifespan, and uh, trying to... Uh, save that for, for later, uh, find some other solution that will um, hopefully be more durable uh, is uh, you know, one of our goals. Um, so in this treatment gap, uh, as some have described it as, uh, really right now we have our um, injections and some biologic treatment options, uh, as well as some knee preservation um, surgical options. Uh, so before we uh, dive into those um, various um, treatment options, uh, I think it's important to just touch on how we measure uh, the effects of treatment. Um, if we can't measure something, we don't really know if it's working. Um, and so I want to just touch on a couple ways that we look at um, you know, the outcomes of these um, treatments. Uh, so the first in our field, um, the, probably the most common way is uh, just something called a patient-reported outcome measure, um, either PRO or PROM. Um, and these are basically just survey instruments that we give to patients uh, you've probably received uh, numerous uh, different surveys after visiting a physician, um, but these are uh, the purpose of this is to gauge uh, the disease state um, as well as the response to treatment. Um, these can be a general health survey, uh, like there's a the SF12 that's looking at your overall health. Um, can be joint specific. So um, this survey at the top is the Coos Knee Survey, um, and that's a, a a survey with five different domains. Um, it looks at pain, function, quality of life, activities of daily living, and um, ability to participate in sports, um, and all related to how that person's knee is functioning. Uh, and then also disease-specific. So there's uh, ones for cartilage injuries. There's an IKDC uh, survey instrument that's pretty valuable for looking at these patients. Um, and um, we also look at, um, in sports medicine, if patients are re- able to return to sport, return to their prior activity levels. Um, so if we're you know, treating a high-level athlete with a cartilage problem, one of our goals is to get them to be able to function at that level. Uh, you know, their uh, daily pain may be secondary, but it's just when they're performing at their elite level, they're um, unable to because of their injury, and then our treatment needs to be able to get them back to that um, same level. Uh, there are uh, numerous studies on these that um, validate uh, for various conditions, um, and then so we'll mention a few of them as we're talking about specific treatment options. Um, those are the subjective evaluations, and um, that's valuable. The, is the, the patient that we're treating, are they responding to what we're, what we're doing? Um, the other side is an objective evaluation. Uh, and really, this falls into two classes, either imaging uh, or uh, arthroscopic evaluation with a like, histological evaluation of the tissue. Uh, so for imaging, um, the most basic way is just with x-rays. 
Uh, so as knee arthritis progresses, uh, we start to lose that space between the femur and the tibia. The cartilage wears, space gets more narrow, uh, and we can track that on x-ray. Um, it's uh, not very sensitive to small changes. Um, if you have a more focal problem, you're not going to pick that up on an x-ray. Um, and it really takes time for um, arthritis to progress on x-rays. Uh, after ACL injuries, for instance, uh, we start seeing uh, degenerative arthritic changes on x-ray about 15 years after injury. Uh, so if we're trying to intervene with a treatment before that, uh, we won't know our answer until 15 years later if we've made a difference. Uh, so um, one uh, tool that I'm uh, particularly interested in and uh, we've done a lot here at UCSF with is uh, uh, MRI for looking at uh, this type of um, disease and problem. Um, so the MRI is a three-dimensional evaluation of um, great resolution for soft tissue and gives us a, a much improved evaluation of anatomy relative to just those uh, standard x-rays. Uh, we can also uh, perform a called quantitative MRI, um, where we use sequences that are um, similar to like mass spectroscopy, uh, where we're looking at the biochemical content of tissue. Um, so as we talked about cartilage, uh, you have that uh, the proteoglycan content, uh, you have that collagen structure, and we're actually able to measure that on uh, MRI uh, to understand if the proteoglycan level is changing, which correlates with arthritis progression. If that t uh, the, um, the collagen structure is changing, we can also pick that up with some of our um, advanced sequences. Uh, so in this, um, this color map, so we're looking at the knee from the side. We have the femur at the top, the tibia at the bottom. Uh, and these colored areas are the cartilage on the ends of each bone. Um, up here, this blue and green uh, type of color, uh, that's reflecting normal proteoglycan content in that knee. Um, as we come through to here, this red is uh, reflecting abnormal proteoglycan, so they've lost that. Uh, and this is something where that joint space on x-ray may look normal. If you took a regular MRI, the tissue might look fairly normal, but we can actually pick up those subtle biochemical changes and use that as something to track uh, our interventions and response to treatment, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, the other objective analysis that we can do is uh, a knee arthroscopy. Uh, so I've showed a couple of videos of looking in the knee. Uh, we can go back in after a cartilage treatment and say, did what we put in there, did it, does it look like cartilage? Uh, we can probe it and say, does it feel like normal cartilage? Um, and then we can also biopsy the tissue and send it to the lab, do our histology, and see if it looks like that normal hyaline cartilage. Uh, downsides there are obviously we're putting the person through another surgical operation. Um, if it's just for diagnostic purposes, they're taking on those risks without uh, you know, potentially uh, making a difference in their treatment. Uh, and then if we're doing histology, we're taking a biopsy of what we've tried to restore, which may be fairly counterproductive. Um, so those uh, that arthroscopic evaluation, histologic evaluation, they're really uh, pretty limited in um, how to evaluate these. So um, as we move into treatment options, um, we'll start first with discussing injection treatments, um, and then after that go into more surgical treatments. So uh, the first and most common injection um, that we use, um, and we still it's been used for years, but uh, just a standard corticosteroid injection. Um, and these medications, uh, they're powerful anti-inflammatories, uh, and then we can directly deliver them into the joint space. Uh, so if that joint is inflamed, uh, you can take uh, anti-inflammatory medications by mouth, uh, those uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. You can take oral steroids, but then those effects are going throughout the body. Uh, so this is a, a focused, directed way that we can put it at the site of inflammation. Uh, they help with pain. They decrease inflammation. Uh, they're also inexpensive, they're safe, and they're generally effective. 
Um, there are some downsides to steroids, though. Um, I think a, a one-time steroid injection, I think, is very safe. Um, for somebody trying to manage um, long-standing arthritis, um, it can be a good option if uh, it seems to give uh, good lasting relief. Um, a recent study, though, um, uh, that was published in JAMA, one of the you know, leading journals in medicine, really, um, they looked at a, a randomized trial uh, comparing steroid injections every three months to just saline injections every three months. Um, and then they looked at those patient-reported outcome measures. Um, and then they also looked at MRI to track the thickness of cartilage in the knee joint. Um, and what they found was um, for patients either injecting saline or that steroid every three months, um, there was no difference in the, the patient's perception of their disease state. Um, so uh, receiving that active steroid medication didn't really change anything. Uh, they did notice, though, that the cartilage thickness on MRI uh, was decreased in that steroid group. Um, so that repeated exposure, this was over a two-year time period, but repeated exposure uh, may be um, uh, detrimental to the articular cartilage. It's a very sensitive tissue, um, and it seems um, you know, this study and, and others show that there may be repeated injections may not be a, a great idea. Um, so if that's the case, we need other options to try and treat these challenging conditions. Um, and one um, that's fairly common also is a hyaluronic acid injection. And um, these... Um, they're synthetic um, medications um, that reproduce the, the normal fluid that's in the knee joint, uh, the synovial fluid. Um, the role of that fluid is to lubricate the joint, to nourish the cartilage, and the injection of that hyaluronic acid is thought to act as a lubricant uh, to stimulate more normal production of synovial fluid. Um, in the setting of arthritis, that fluid composition actually changes, and there's some thought that this may reset it to more normal-type fluid. Um, and then they're also thought to act as a strong anti-inflammatory agent, so just help with pain. Um, this is uh, one um, recent study that compiled results from a number of other studies, um, a meta-analysis, and um, looked at the response to hyaluronic acid injections over time uh, and can see that at the eight-week time point after injection, um, there's a reasonable effect size. Uh, people are feeling better. Uh, and then as we get further away from injection, that really tapers off. Um, the, the evidence on these right now is um, fairly variable. Um, for instance, the, our um, orthopedic surgery academy, the, academy of, um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, uh, recommends against their use in arthritis, just that there isn't enough evidence to support the cost to use them. Um, some of the rheumatological organizations, they recommend using them. Um, so it's, uh, this one is kind of mixed bag on um, the, the true role. Uh, there's probably no downside to it, uh, but it's just is the, the cost of those medications, is that worth the benefit, um, the limited benefit that we may derive? Um, so we still don't have a, a perfect solution, so we'll keep going. And um, there's a lot of interest right now in uh, biologic injections. Um, and these, um, the, the drivers, it's an attempt to harness our body's healing, regeneration potential uh, to modify symptoms in the disease state. Uh, and these include uh, platelet-rich plasma and stem cell injections. And so if you um, ever look up platelet-rich plasma or PRP, uh, there's no shortage of what it can do. Um, it will get you playing golf like Tiger, tennis like Rafael Nadal, saves careers, um, you know, it will get you back in the game. It'll give you a better self-image. Uh, basically, anything you want, it can, it can do. Uh, but we'll try to look a little more at some evidence and um, see what's realistic. So um, first, uh, just very basically, um, PRP 
It's a volume of plasma uh, with a platelet count that's higher than uh, normal whole blood. Um, so the, the platelets, um, they're important in clotting um, for the blood. Um, they're a component of uh, our normal blood. And then this uh, platelet-rich plasma is just the, the plasma component with an elevated platelet count. Um, and the thought is that there's various growth factors um, that are present in, uh, it's called the alpha granule, uh, just a component of the platelet inside that cell. And um, those growth factors may be um, useful in um, diseases, uh, inflammatory conditions uh, like arthritis, tendonitis, et cetera. Um, and uh, we can exploit these as a powerful directed biologic treatment. Um, and really recently there's been an increase in the clinical utilization. Uh, so this, uh, this figure here, um, so we're looking at uh, the, the baseline percentage and, um, and then these are all growth factors that um, have some role in um, cartilage health um, and inflammation. And we're able to deliver those all at a higher concentration with um, this biologic treatment. Um, so one thing, though, is that uh, not all PRP is the same. Uh, this is, uh, these uh, figures here, these are just six different systems. Um, they're all made by a different um, orthopedic device company. Uh, and they all have a slightly different preparation protocol. Um, the, you spin the blood in a centrifuge. Um, the spin rates are all a little different. Um, and as a result, the end product is different. Um, we can also prepare it uh, specifically with um, uh, different um, variables, uh, including the presence or the absence of white blood cells. Um, that'll be important on the next couple slides as we talk about uh, PRP for knee arthritis. Um, but uh, some of these systems, you can um, exclude white blood cells or keep them in, depending on what you want to treat. Um, and then we can also um, leave a fibrin architecture, um, so meaning that we can make this as a, like a gel or a more solid substance that can be used in surgery. You can put it directly where you want um, versus um, the ones without a fibrin architecture, so that's something that you could inject instead. Um, it's also important when we're talking about um, the variability of PRP um, that uh, it varies from person to person. Um, so all of our blood is going to be slightly different, and uh, the um, concentration of growth factors, the overall, overall composition will be different if we uh, look at you know, two people in this audience. Uh, they've also shown that uh, that concentration can vary depending on what time of day you draw the, the blood, uh, different concentrations in the morning versus afternoon. Um, if you've had a uh, a high-fat meal recently that can um, alter the concentrations too. So um, when we talk about using PRP also, I think it's important to realize this isn't like, you know, I'm going to take Advil. I'm going to go uh, to the drugstore. I'm going to buy Advil, and that bottle is going to be the same as the next, same as the next, because we can standardize the preparation. Um, here, we don't always know exactly what we're putting in, which um, increases a lot of variability in, I think, our results that we, uh, that we have. So uh, to prepare PRP... Um, we start with a blood draw um, and just take um, anywhere from 30 to 60 milliliters of blood usually, depending on the system again. Um, it's then um, uh, placed into the centrifuge, and uh, the blood goes through one or two spin cycles uh, to spin down the elements so you're, uh, you're able to isolate the layer with the plasma and the platelets. Um, and then this is what that final injectable looks like. Uh, and so here, uh, that 30 to 60 uh, milliliters of blood is now concentrated down to you know, pulling off five milliliters, and that's able to be um, injected for um, local delivery. So um, some studies on uh, the role of uh, platelet-rich plasma in arthritis. I think this is one of the, um, the better 
studies on the topic and um, from one of uh, my mentors that I was able to train with. Uh, but comparing um, hyaluronic acid and platelet-rich plasma, um, this was a double-blind, randomized control trial, so neither the, uh, the person injecting uh, nor the patient knew which one they were getting. So really our, uh, our highest quality of evidence for this type of study. Um, and they um, took patients with uh, mild to moderate knee arthritis, um, tried to recruit everybody that came in, and then um, you, know, you always uh, whittle it down to a much smaller number. Uh, but they were able to randomize um, 111 patients between these two treatments. And um, what they found um, was the, um, the, uh, the outcome scores between uh, PRP and uh, hyaluronic acid. Um, if you look at just the WOMAC score, uh, which is uh, one of those survey instruments that reflects um, pain in the knee, um, there was really no difference between the two groups at 6 weeks, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, or at one year. Um, if you look um, a little further into their results, so I think a few interesting findings that they point out, um, but one of the really nice things that they did was they actually um, took synovial fluid samples um, periodically through the study, and they were able to look at the inflammatory uh, molecules in the, uh, the knee joint fluid uh, to see if these treatments were influencing that at all. Um, and what they found was uh, early on um, in this uh, like six to 12-week time frame, um, the uh, inflammatory cytokines, the chemicals in the knee, they were lower in the platelet-rich plasma group. So it seems like this had some effect on limiting inflammation in the knee. Um, and then one of their outcome measures was uh, the IKDC score. Um, so that's a knee-specific outcome that reflects a little bit more about activity. Um, it's not just um, focused on pain. Um, and it was uh, consistently higher in the, the PRP group um, compared to the uh, HA group um, across really all time points. Uh, and so um, what they found was, or what they concluded from this is that the uh, PRP worked better for uh, mild arthritis. And then also they found that patients with a lower BMI, so a lower weight, uh, seemed to have more of a positive response. Um, they did find that these lower levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So um, I think that this is really one of the more interesting things from this study, that uh, they're able to introduce what we think is an anti-inflammatory agent, and they're able to directly measure that the, these concentrations are lower, like we're having that, uh, what we think is, um, that effect is happening. Um, and then patients were able to uh, likely keep going at a higher level of activity. Uh, their pain may still be um, a similar level, but they're performing um, at a higher activity level relative to uh, where they were before. Uh, so uh, kind of mixed results, but um, some mo mild to moderate benefit of PRP over um, hyaluronic acid. Um, there have also been a number of recent um, systematic reviews um, and so a systematic review is where we pool multiple studies in the medical literature and try and, uh, you know, take these smaller studies. They're looking at, you know, 20 to 100 patients, group them all together, and then see with that are we able to notice any trends that you may not pick up in those smaller sample sizes. Um, these systematic reviews have all included level one and level two evidence. Uh, so that prior study, that double-blind randomized control trial, uh, that's a level one study. That's the, the best that we can do. Um, and level two is just short of that, um, a couple of... Uh, a couple of differences, but also very high quality evidence. Um, and across these studies, um, what we see is that uh, the uh, platelet-rich plasma, the results do seem to be a bit better, um, though they're not um, you know, overwhelmingly better than uh, what we see with hyaluronic acid. Um, in this uh, study, uh, they're looking at um, breaking it down. So we mentioned that 
you can have these different compositions of PRP. You can have it with white blood cells and without. And uh, what they found is really that that leukocyte pore, uh, so no white blood cells in it, um, that's the one that really seems to be having uh, the better results. And if you look at just that, you see a positive effect. If you include the studies that also put white blood cells in there, then it kind of washes out. Um, and that, that previous randomized trial, that was looking at the one, uh, the PRP without the white blood cells, so um, in line with that finding. Um, here, uh, we're looking again, uh, PRP uh, and uh, control injection. Uh, and interpreting these odds ratios, uh, this black diamond is summarizing all those results. Um, if it crosses this midline, then there's um, assumed to be no difference between the groups. Um, here, we're a little shifted to the right, but again, we include that middle line that would say uh, no clear statistical difference between these groups. Um, so, you know, overall, in looking at all these uh, various studies, um, it does show that so, uh, they favor PRP with a modest effect, um, but um, none of these are able to look at the natural history of patients with uh, knee arthritis treated with this platelet-rich plasma. So um, I think at this point, uh, when looking at uh, platelet-rich plasma treatment, um, there's a possible benefit from this leukocyte pore, so no white blood cells, PRP. Uh, the results seem to last about a year. Um, I don't think there's any evidence um, to support structural regeneration. This is not going to regrow cartilage, restore meniscus, anything like that, uh, but may work as an anti-inflammatory, help with symptoms, help with activities. Uh, but again, we don't have any long-term data yet on the, the natural history. Uh, so then next type of biologic injection, so stem cell injections. Uh, I've included quotation marks around it because we're not always sure exactly uh, the stem cell concentrations. Uh, but So mesenchymal stem cells, um, they're uh, cells within our bodies that have the potential to differentiate into cartilage, bone, tendon, and muscle. Um, and the thought is that if we put these um, cells into that joint environment, that they may allow for targeted regeneration of tissue. Uh, there's also a thought that these cells themselves are uh, strong anti-inflammatory agents. Um, and the mesenchymal stem cells, we find them in our bone marrow and also in our uh, fat. And so two common sources, this is uh, showing withdrawing um, fat. So basically like a liposuction procedure, um, withdraw fat from the abdomen and then um, spin that down, concentrate it to uh, a liquid form and then able to inject that into a targeted location. Um, and then this is withdrawing bone marrow from the pelvis, from the iliac crest, which is a good source of uh, bone marrow. So uh, outcomes of stem cell injections, uh, there is very, very literature at this point, very few published studies um, on this topic. Um, this is one study that looked at um, outcomes of um, stem cell injections uh, for knee arthritis over a two-year time period. Um, and they looked at a low-dose, medium-dose, high-dose um, and then tracked their, um, their Womax scores, that um, reflection of pain, and then a, just a pain score um, over two years. And uh, people got better. Uh, but the problem here, there's no control group. Uh, this isn't compared to anything. The patients all know that they're receiving this. We know that that's very, very powerful. We also know that uh, with time and treatment, arthritis can get better. Um, I compare this to, um, this is a randomized trial of uh, going in arthroscopically, cleaning up the joint, uh, versus doing a sham surgery where they put incisions on consenting patients but no surgery and then just followed those patients. Um, and everybody got better, stayed better, and really follows a similar trajectory of uh, that, uh, that stem cell treatment. So, um, you know, we really need to better studies that compare uh, to um, control groups, to other available treatments before uh, really drawing conclusions. Um, 
And then there's a lot of um, interest in um, in general on this topic. Um, I think this was published uh, two or three days ago, but it's this week in the New York Times. Um, and um, the stem cell clinics are um, you know popping up everywhere. Uh, the FDA is uh, looking to probably regulate a bit more, but they've they haven't done uh, too much yet. Um, and it's um, an area that a lot is happening, but uh, the evidence it's really not quite there to, to support um, these treatments, in my opinion. Um, so for the, the current state of biologic injections, um, platelet-rich plasma, I think there may be some benefit in mild to moderate arthritis, um, but it's important to remember that there are variations in preparation um, in the composition that we'll get, and we don't always know exactly what we're injecting. Um, the stem cell injections, um, I don't think there's any available data right now uh, to support widespread use. Um, and these treatments are often costly. They're not paid for by insurance. They're uh, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 out of pocket. And I don't think that um, we as a field can say, um, you know, pursue this. This will regrow cartilage. This will make a difference in the, uh, the long-term um, progression of arthritis. Um, I do think this is a fairly exciting area, though, um, and uh, further, I think clinical research is really needed in this area to um, understand the role um, of these treatments. Uh, one final injection um, in class of injections. Um, so the field of uh, rheumatology, um, conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, have really been changed by um, disease-modifying agents. Um, and these are, um, for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, it's a, uh, either an injection, oral medication, um, and it um, stops the systemic inflammatory process or modulates it. And you're able to alter the disease course through these um, immune pathways um, and really limit the uh, devastating effects of conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there's been more interest recently in developing similar treatments for osteoarthritis. Um, so um, one such treatment, um, it's from a, a, a company named SAMUMED, and this is one of the research studies that we're doing here at UCSF, um, but it um, focuses on inhibiting the WINT pathway. Um, and so that pathway, as outlined here, it's important in cartilage uh, degeneration, regeneration, uh, and they have a molecule that uh, can be delivered uh, through injection into the knee uh, and may be uh, important for treating pain associated with arthritis. Um, there's also, they have some early animal studies that show that it may have a role in cartilage uh, regeneration too. Um, so this uh, may be having its desired effect. It's gone through a phase two study with the FDA so far. It's been shown to be safe. And then uh, we're helping um, understand, you know, does this um, help with symptoms? And we're also going to be looking at um, repeat MRIs uh, after injecting this to see, uh, you know, is this changing the cartilage? So like we saw in that steroid study, um, perpetually putting in steroid, that cartilage gets thinner and thinner. Uh, we're hoping something like this, we inject that, a one-time injection, and then the may see some cartilage regeneration even. Uh, so it's, I think this is a pretty interesting class of medications that we're uh, looking into a bit here too. So um, next uh, we'll move into um, surgical options. Um, and for the, the surgical treatment, so going back to our um, classes of different types of uh, degenerative or um, issues in the knee. Um, so widespread disease, probably not a great surgical treatment for restoring cartilage. Uh, we're not able to resurface the whole thing. Uh, but if we have a focal cartilage injury, just one spot, uh, then um, we uh, get a little more interested that we can help that with an operation. Uh, so the first um, and um, probably the, the simplest option that we will use is um, it's a marrow stimulation procedure. Uh, so this is microfracture, um, and this uh, procedure is done arthroscopically, 
And um, you essentially use an instrument to poke holes into the subchondral bone. Um, and so the, um, that bone underlying the cartilage, um, there are the mesenchymal stem cells, the MSCs, in that layer. And by poking the holes in there, you're able to um, bring those elements out. Uh, and then uh, the hope is that they fill in that defect with new tissue. Um, the, uh, the area of cartilage loss um, is then filled with uh, fibrocartilage. So going back to our histology, we talked about type 2 collagen being the primary collagen in um, hyaline cartilage. This repair tissue has type 1 cartilage, type 1 collagen, sorry. Uh, and the, the downside is it's not as durable as our usual knee hyaline cartilage, uh, but it is, it's better than having uh, no cartilage. Uh, so um, it's also nice because we do this in a single operation. Um, we'll talk about a couple others that uh, require multiple operations. Um, and then the surgical instruments, they're readily available. This is a fairly quick, easy, inexpensive procedure. Um, and then the, the downside is that it fills with fiber cartilage, not as durable as uh, normal cartilage. So um, works, but uh, hopefully we can do better. Uh, one um, study here uh, that is a pretty nice um, evaluation of uh, microfracture. Uh, so looking at 48 patients, minimum two-year follow-up. Um, what they found is uh, that about two-thirds of their patients had good or excellent outcomes with this treatment. So that means one-third, uh, either uh, fair or poor. Um, the, the outcomes, so when they look back on uh, imaging, um, they're related to how well that defect fills in with uh, the um, fibrocartilage. Um, and these, um, these figures here, this top one, is showing um, different scores. So an activities of daily living score, um, the um, SF36, and then also just a subjective rating, um, and how that relates to either a good fill in black, the moderate in uh, the light gray, and then a poor fill in dark gray. So if we can get a good fill, which we uh, can't always control perfectly surgically, but that leads to a good outcome. Um, and also, uh, patients with a lower BMI, uh, so lower weight, uh, they had better outcomes in general. Um, so then um, another option for surgically treating these lesions is, uh, or another class is a cell-based treatment. Um, so one of these um, that's um, FDA-approved and uh, fairly commonly used is um, called matrix-associated autologous chondrocyte implantation, or MACI. Um, and this procedure it requires two stages. Um, so the first stage, we go in arthroscopically, uh, and we take a piece of normal cartilage from the knee. Uh, and they want us to send uh, two, like, tic-tac-sized samples of cartilage, so, you know, really small. Um, and uh, we're able to do that minimally invasively, um, outpatient procedure, fairly easy to recover from. Um, and then we send that tissue off to their lab, and there they grow uh, that cartilage um, in culture and then are able to give us back um, a disc with um, some uh, matrix and those chondrocytes on it. So we're taking the patient's own cells from cartilage, and then we're regenerating new tissue. Uh, they're able to send that back to us, um, and then we're able to implant that surgically. Um, so this is a patient with, um, this is looking at their kneecap, and um, this is an area of missing cartilage. Uh, so you can see the smooth white through here. Uh, the purple dots are uh, surgically to outline the, the bad area, and then that's uh, just a missing piece of cartilage. Um, and then on the, the right here, this has now been filled um, by that um, regenerated tissue. Um, and, you know, one advantage here is that we're replacing um, articular hyaline cartilage. Uh, they've done studies to look, and it's not quite as normal, but it's uh, better than that fibrocartilage that we get with microfracture. Um, you do need normal bone underneath, um, so we're just resurfacing the lining of it. Um, and so if there's a, a large pothole of bone, uh, just you know, repainting uh, the top of it, it's not going to change that underlying bony problem. 
so what are results like with, uh, with this treatment? Um, so uh, there have been a number of studies. This treatment has been around in various um, iterations since uh, the 90s. Um, and this is one where uh, randomized patients to uh, microfracture or uh, this MACI, um, this cell-based treatment, um, and found that the, the results for MACI, uh, so this is looking at function, looking at pain, um, and their various scores are outlined here. Uh, and then at um, two years and at five years, um, we see better patient-reported outcome scores in this cell-based treatment relative to microfracture. Um, the downsides, though, you know, we um, now have put this person through two operations, even though they're uh, not extensive, but still surgical risk, anesthetic risk. Um, it's a fairly costly procedure, so we're having to send this off. The lab's growing it. We're not just poking holes in the bone. Um, and, um, and then the, you know, that whole process for the patient is a little bit longer, too. So uh, it looks like our results are a bit better, but um, it's also not a perfect treatment. Um, there's a lot of interest recently in um, addressing some of those limitations with a single-stage procedure. Uh, so we're not able to take somebody's cartilage and then in the operating room grow uh, cartilage that just takes weeks to do. Um, but um, there's some thought that we can implant scaffolds uh, and then kind of use that microfracture procedure to then uh, get better um, replacement tissue. Uh, so one product... Um, is um, it's called Gelrin C, and I'm not associated with the company at all, but we are doing a study um, here at UCSF where we're going to um, enroll patients to treat with this um, and you know, see is it beneficial and helpful. Um, and basically with this, um, we're doing that microfracture procedure, poking those holes, and then put a hydrogel um, over the area. Um, it goes in as a liquid, and then in, uh, you apply UV light to get it to solidify, and then it forms a biodegradable scaffold uh, with the thought that those uh, stem cells can then um, um, uh, work their way into that scaffold and then um, reform more normal tissue. Um, so there's um, an early study where they used that advanced quantitative um, MRI um, to look at the, the composition of that repair tissue. Um, and we know that we can look at that uh, from microfracture with these sequences, and we know that it's not normal. It's not the same as our articular cartilage. Um, but this, um, this single-stage procedure, um, it does seem to show um, this is now uh, bringing it back to more normal, um, at least on uh, this imaging, more normal-looking tissue. So uh, this is um, not a widely available product yet, but I think a pretty exciting direction of treatment. Um, then the final um, group of treatments, two of them in this, but um, osteochondral transplants. And uh, with this, we're taking a bone and cartilage unit um, and transplanting that to the area with cartilage loss. Um, so like I mentioned in that um, slide with the, you know, the architecture of cartilage, um, there's a you know, complex structure between the, uh, the articular layer and the subchondral bone. Uh, and uh, a lot of our treatments, even if we're putting that um, hyaline cartilage on there from Macy, uh, we're probably not recreating that structure completely. Um, and then the interaction between cartilage and bone uh, may not be quite as normal as what we, what we have. So uh, these types of treatment, we're replacing that entire unit um, from the articular layer down to bone. Um, and then we're, again, restoring normal hyaline cartilage, which um, is better than fiber cartilage, better wear properties. Uh, and then we're also relying on bony healing. Um, and bone is one of the, the best healing tissues, so uh, it's uh, better than soft tissue healing. Like You can get bone to bone, and that's uh, very solid. So uh, these uh, osteochondral transplants, um, one is an osteochondral autograft. Um, so that's where we're taking the patient's own bone and cartilage and moving it from one location to the other. Um, there's a few areas in the knee 
um, like up around the kneecap specifically usually, where uh, there's not um, articulation, there's no weight bearing going across it. And we're able to borrow a few areas of cartilage from there and then move that to a more important area where you're transmitting weight and load. Um, you can also put in, take multiple smaller plugs uh, to fill a larger area, um, but you're really limited um, by the amount of available cartilage. Uh, there are some people that will even go to the patient's other knee, their normal knee, take cartilage there. Uh, we'll even sometimes take cartilage from the knee to the ankle and knee to the elbow, um, other areas, just because these areas um, work well to, to borrow from. Um, the, the downsides are obviously that we're now creating a, a hole in another area um, that can be painful, uh, but we're replacing with your own tissue, which is nice, replacing bone and cartilage, and then putting that cartilage where it's needed most. Um, the other option is an osteochondral allograft transplant. Um, and then with this, we're taking bone and cartilage from a cadaver source. Um, so someone who's um, elected to donate their organs, um, if the, the knee is in good condition, um, and we'll usually look for uh, a younger uh, patient um, and obviously disease-free uh, because that can be transmitted. But um, then these grafts are checked uh, for sterility, uh, to ensure that there's not transmittable diseases, and then we're able to take that and implant that into the knee. Uh, we use a fresh graft for this, um, so uh, there's a lot of things that we'll use that are uh, they're processed, they're frozen, so on, but um, this is something that we try to implant within uh, 20 days of um, that person passing away. Um, we have to match the size, match the contour, so it can be a little bit complicated to find uh, the right um, tissue to be able to put in, um, but you can use this to fill very large defects. So if you're missing a large area of cartilage, uh, the bones involved, uh, you may not have enough of um, those areas of your bone and cartilage to, to move over, um, and this is, can be a very good option. Um, and then you also avoid you know, injuring that other um, area where um, previously was, was pretty normal. Um, so this is just a, a little uh, a video of, of one such patient. So um, this is looking at um, the front of his knee where the kneecap tracks the trochlea. Um, and this area is all lost cartilage uh, with more normal cartilage surrounding it. Um, this is the, the same picture for this patient with um, the knee um, open. This is done in an open, uh, small open surgery. Uh, and what we're able to do is make a, a round, um, just a circular or cylindrical um, site. Uh, and then we're able to uh, prepare a, a fresh knee uh, with great cartilage, uh, select a similar, similarly contoured area, uh, match that up, and then take that cylinder from there, um, harvest that with the same instruments, uh, and then we're able to implant that in. So now we're uh, resurfacing that full area that um, you know used to look like this, and then now we have uh, more normal cartilage. Um, so it's a nice way to uh, to be able to deal with these larger problems um, when the other options aren't aren't possible. Um, obviously, uh, there's a limited amount of tissue for that, and it can be very costly too, uh, but it, uh, we'll see it can work pretty well. Um, so um, a couple studies on these um, osteochondral treatment options. So first, looking at the osteochondral autograft, so taking the patient's own tissue. Um, these were patients that were randomized to either the microfracture procedure. In a lot of these studies, that microfracture is used as our gold standard uh, comparison, because uh, that's been around the longest and um, fairly easy to do, and we know what it does. Uh, but so they compared uh, this osteochondral autograph to microfracture, um, and the, found that the uh, long-term outcomes were better in the osteochondral autograph group. 
Um, that makes sense because we're taking highland cartilage, better wear properties. Uh, we're getting good healing between the bone um, and comparing that versus that fibrocartilage that's formed from microfracture. Uh, so, um, you know, scientifically it makes sense, but it's good to see um, clinically too. Um, and then another study looking at um, microfracture osteochondral autographs, so looking at the cost. Um, so for taking those plugs of cartilage, we do have to use specialized instruments. Um, it's not just poking a couple holes um, in the bone, a little longer procedure. Um, but uh, found that the, the upfront cost, it is higher in um, moving the bone and cartilage, uh, but the result is more durable. Um, and so um, found that actually both microfracture and the osteochondral autograft can be cost-effective treatments. So um, both of these can, um, can work well and um, economically make sense. And then finally, this is um, uh, another study looking at the outcomes of that osteochondral allograft treatment. So when we're taking uh, cadaver tissue, um, and I should add, too, that um, you know, it's not like a kidney transplant or a liver transplant where we put these patients on um, immunosuppressant medications. Um, the, that uh, tissue is uh, it's washed of any immunogenic uh, material, um, and so it's, uh, you don't need um, medications or anything like that, which is um, definitely important. Um, and these, this is a survival curve of looking at how long that graft um, stayed in the person's knee. Um, and re- looking out to 10 years, um, the result of that graft still being there, um, not having a knee replacement, other surgery, it's um, above 80%. So really working well, incorporating. Um, and then looking at their uh, preoperative to postoperative scores, um, everything improves pretty dramatically. This is a, an effective treatment for a difficult problem. Um, and one that, you know, when you're looking at a bigger loss of cartilage can really work well. So um, one thing that we often are asked is, um, okay, I've got this cartilage problem, but when can I go back to, to doing everything? Uh, or will I go back? And um, this study uh, was a meta-analysis of grouping a bunch of studies together looking at the collected return-to-play rates. Um, and found 76%, so three-quarters of these patients were able to get them back to sport in general. Um, the highest rate of return um, was that osteochondral autograft. Um, some of that is probably biased by the size. You know, if we're treating a smaller lesion, that's going to be a, a smaller problem. Um, but uh, compared to microfracture, this osteochondral autograft really got people back um, at a higher rate, 90 plus. Uh, the fastest return to play was also the osteochondral autograft. Um, this too is it's a bit surgeon specific. Um, uh, these studies will change their rehab plan. There's no um, set gold standard, but um, again, we have um, bony healing, which we think will happen faster than that repair tissue, um, either from the cell-based treatment or microfracture maturing. Um, and so we can get people back a little quicker um, with this treatment. So um, in summary, um, hope um, not too much information or not thrown uh, too quickly, but um, I think it's important to take away that knee arthritis, it's um, important, impactful, and a disabling condition. Uh, this really um, influences people's quality of life, um, what they're able to do, uh, and as, uh, as a society, it's very costly. Um, I think the, the biologics, especially uh, the injections, they still need further um, research before um, really recommending widespread adoption and support. Um, I think the, the current evidence on the platelet-rich plasma um, does appear to offer some benefit in mild to moderate knee arthritis, but uh, I think more work needs to be done in this area. Um, and then um, we do have surgical options, so if we have those focal areas, uh, we um, have some, um, some proven options and some more in the works um, that are able to restore that lost cartilage. Um, so with that, um, thank you all for listening, um, and be happy to take any questions. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.